0: Today is July 9th, 2013. This is episode 1164, but I'm speaking to you from the past. Yes, several days earlier is when I actually recorded this show because I'm in the wilds of Helena, Montana today with Dave Jackie and a bunch of really cool people learning to design and develop edible forest gardens and designing, as far as I know, the second ever public food forest in the United States of America for the city of Helena's public park system. Uh, So I'm learning a lot of stuff. I'll hopefully be able to share with you guys in the future, Uh, but when I get back, anyway. Um, But today I have a cool interview for you. Kurt Linville is hanging on the line. Well, was hanging on the line since this is from the past. Um, And Kurt was a guy we've had on before. He's from 180 TAC. They do an MSB discount for the 180 Stove. Uh, cool guy, expert in wilderness survival, cold weather camping, all that stuff. Lives in the Colorado Rockies area now and camps out in some of the harshest, coldest environments there is. But he's not here to talk about wilderness, wilderness survival. No, he did that before. He did that in episode, uh, I don't remember what episode it was, but he did uh, episode 900 and something. I have a link in to today's show notes for you if you want to hear the original episode. which what you might after you hear today's, Kurt ended that episode saying the... Strongest thing we have for survival is love. Yes, Mary White, love. Yeah, but love really is a very powerful emotion, and I think he left that, and a lot of people really thought it was cool that he said that, but they didn't really understand what he meant. Today he's coming back to tell us what he means about that from the standpoint of a prepared community. Not a prepper community, not a prepper group, a prepared community. This was a great interview for me because it was a lot like hearing about my own hometown with some cultural and geographical differences. I grew up as the grandchild of first-generation Ukrainian immigrants in uh, the coal region of Pennsylvania, surrounded by a lot of Slovakian influence, old-world influence, but a lot of a prepared mindset. Uh, Kurt grew up in rural Oklahoma, more of, I guess, a German-Dutch heritage. Uh, and people that have been here quite a bit longer than my grandparents. My grandparents arrived here in the 1890s as first-generation immigrants, as young children, where I think uh, Kurt's family and most of the family he grew up around were, you know, third, fourth, fifth-generation folks in the U.S., and uh, he's got some great stories. We'll go into that, and it, it's actually so cool that I put out a post that you will not see until the future, but I've already done it from the past, The Magic of WordPress about a, po- a, a podcast I did a long time ago on Growing Up in the Coal Region for Thursday. So there's going to be a post that will come out Thursday. It won't be a new episode, but you'll be able to go to the thesurvivalpodcast.com and listen to that old episode of the Survival Podcast. And I think if you have this one still in your mind, it'll be quite interesting. Before I get uh, Kurt on the line, though, and get into his interview, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, westernbotanicals.com. Hey, you know what happened to me this weekend right before I recorded this episode? Um, I went out. In the field with my geese, and I've got my geese free now. I haven't done any videos for you guys yet, but I will want to get back. We've got the geese free ranging the whole three acres. We keep them in a one-acre western pasture though for most of the day, and we let them out at different times when we feel like letting them out. When we can kind of keep an eye on what they're doing in the garden and the dogs, because they're uh, kind of enemies of the dogs right now. We're trying to teach them to coexist but i went out in the field and i was hanging out with my geese and i sat down and had a beer with them and i was talking to them the way i do and they all went behind me even though they've been really gentle kind geese to me occasionally nipping at my hair but nothing more i decided to turn around as i turned around i laid my leg down on the ground and something bit the hell out of me what does this have to do with western botanicals you'll find out in a second so it bit the hell out of me and it burned and it hurt and i looked for it and i didn't see what it was. There's a big hole in my leg. So either I put my leg down on one of these big nasty red wasps or maybe a scorpion or something. So a burn. I mean, it burned. And I mean, like, it hurt when it did it. And when I looked for it and it was gone, it, it, it burned more as I walked back to the house. Now, I wasn't being a little baby going, ah, oh, I got it," I was just thinking, hey, you know, this, this sucks. So I went and got some aloe off one of our aloe plants, busted it open and put the aloe stuff on my leg. And, gee, the pain went away. And, uh, this, just this weekend, we had, you know, actually last week, 4th of July, we had fireworks going off and my, my goddaughter and niece Meyer, uh, grabbed hold of the end of one of those long lighters, like the lighters used like charcoal grills and stuff that one of the other boys had used to, uh, light the fireworks and the end was hot and it burned her and I put aloe on her finger and it stopped burning. What does that tell us? The power of herbs are real. I've also been stung pretty, uh, gnarly up at, uh, Ben Fogg's place. First thing I did, mash up some plantain. Put it on my uh, bite. Pain went away immediately. See, herbs are healing, even with something as stupid as a wasp bite, just to make it less of an annoyance. But I can't always just grab an aloe or grab a piece of plantain. Sometimes there's things I need I can't get. I can't wildcraft, or I just don't have them right now, and I need them, or I need them in quantities that are hard to produce, like turmeric, which I use for anti-inflammation. I get all that stuff from Western Botanicals because I know it's either organically grown or wildcrafted. I know I can trust those folks up there. And I know if I call them and say, look, I don't know what I need. Here's my issue. They'll tell me this is what you need, including sometimes they'll say, don't call us for that. You need to go to the doctor for that. We don't do that. Western Botanicals, honest people, great products, and a wonderful discount program. How would you like to save 25% on everything from Western Botanicals? They have this thing. You pay them 50 bucks. A year, and you get 25% off everything. If you use a lot of herbals, pays for itself. If you're a member of the MSB, your first year, free, 50 bucks, pays for your whole MSB. Second year, if you want to keep it, 25 bucks. And you get it at half price from that point forward. How awesome is that? How awesome is Western Botanicals? How awesome is the power of herbs? Next up today, harvest eating. The illustrious, awesome, cool, kick ass, kick ash, kick ass chef Keith Snow, who will teach you to cook seasonally and locally, and make cooking a life skill. Check him out at harvesteating.com. Make sure you get the low and slow barbecue seasoning he has. Oh, my God, is that awesome. Do a brisket or a pork shoulder on a sidewalk smoker with that, and you it is smack your mama good. That's, that's something we say down here in Texas. For those that have never heard it before, it doesn't really mean smack your mom. It's a, it's a saying. Don't get upset. Seriously, the, the Northern Italian's another great one. Montreal State Grilled Chicken. All of the seasonings are great. Great podcast. He's got an awesome cookbook. Tons of video content. Check it out today. HarvestEating.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. How'd you like that, uh, free Western Botanicals premium membership? Hey, join my support brigade. You'll get that. It's just one thing, like discounts from 40 vendors. How about a, uh, you know, how about, how about two benefits that will actually make your first year of membership make you a dollar? Okay. So you get the free $50 membership from Western Botanicals. You get a free $49 lifetime membership to Safecastle. Discounts on everything Safecastle sells. That's $99 for a $50 membership. You just made a buck in your first year. And then there's like thirty-eight other vendors with discounts. There's a ton of free ebooks, almost two hundred dollars worth of free ebooks. You download them the day you join. All kinds of great deals. And you'll support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Military law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service. First responders like paramedics, EMTs, and law enforcement officers of any type, firefighters, you name it. If you're a first responder, if you're out there, you're butt on the line for this country at home or abroad or taking care of folks and spreading goodwill like they do in the Peace Corps. And if you're doing it now or you did it in the past, you qualify for a great discount. It's an awesome discount. I don't even tell people what it is It's so good. Email me before you join the Members Brigade, not after, before. Put service discount in the subject line. Give me in two to three sentences who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if your prior service. I'll respond back and tell you how to save even more money on a really great product with that, I do have the uh, housekeeping wrapped up, and it's uh, it's my pleasure now to introduce a guy that's becoming more and more my good friend. Every time I talk to him, he's just a guy I have more and more affinity with, and I think you'll hear that today in today's interview. And with that, hey, Kurt, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man.
1: Hey, thanks, Jack. It is an honor to be back here again. Um, sure, I had a fun time last time uh, that I was on the show. At that point, we talked about wilderness survival skills. And we also introduced our 180 stove, which is a, a great emergency stove product. Um, just wanted to say a special thank you to all the listeners out there who responded to that. We uh, we had a lot of people come to our site to check out our stoves. And a lot of people took advantage of the offers to, uh, to add a stove to their bug out bag. And it was uh, it was a really positive thing. So I just want to say thanks to everyone for that.
0: Well, cool, man. I appreciate the fact that you uh, you threw out a discount last time, and maybe I'll hit you up for something here at the end this time, but uh we're kind of shifting gears this time um, from what we had you on last time. Last time we had you on to talk about wilderness survival skills. Uh, today we're going to talk about living in a prepared community. And you and I kind of chatted by email about this and prepared community does not equal prepper community, right? It's, it's something different. So how does, uh, how does, how do the two things differ and how does this concept relate to, you know, our previous podcast was all about surviving in the wilderness?
1: Yeah. Well, I grew up in the seventies and eighties in northeastern Oklahoma and there, My extended family and friends of the extended family made up a community that lived a prepper lifestyle, but they didn't know it. Um, They weren't preparing for some coming cataclysm or disaster. Instead, their lifestyle had grown out of living close to the land and also having come out of some real challenges um, historically. And so they were prepared rather than preparing and just lived it as a way of life. So in the last show, we talked about the wilderness survival skills, and you know, I fell in love with the land in Oklahoma, and then when I moved to Colorado about 25 years ago, I explored those skills, and that was what led to the the information in the last podcast we did. However, we wrapped up that podcast with my claim that the most critical asset for survival is love, and we didn't have a lot of time to talk about that, and I think that To better understand what that's all about, I think uh, a review of what living in a prepared community was like will clarify that claim.
0: Very cool. So um, on that note, just give me – with that in mind, um, can you just kind of describe the the community you grew up in, this prepared community, so folks have a, a context for what the heck we're talking about?
1: You know what? That's a a really big question. So I'd like to go through several layers of that and kind of um, work down through it so people get a really good picture of what it looks like. And the reason I want to talk about it is not just to defend my statement about love. I want people to be encouraged that these sorts of communities have existed in the past, that they can exist today. And it's, it's a goal that a lot of people should set, I think, to develop this type of community as part of their overall preparedness. And so I want to dive into what this was like, but hopefully it'll be a real encouraging and we'll have some fun anecdotes and things in there, too. So um, to explore this, I think we need to cover a little bit of the history of the area. And we're also going to be talking about uh, farming and hunting and about the social dynamics in this community. So history first. Oklahoma became a state in 1907. And before that, it was Indian Territory. Um, Due to the jurisdiction limits that were in place because of that, it became the home for a lot of different outlaws who were trying to get away from the U.S. Marshals. And people that know Oklahoma history know about this, but it it made Oklahoma a bit of a wild land um, in, well, you remember Judge Parker that was in Fort Smith. He was part of the history at that time, and he was known as a hanging judge. Correct. Yeah, bounty hunters would...
0: And that, that's for folks, that's Arkansas for folks that so don't know. Right. Arkansas,
1: uh, right. Bounty hunters would come into Oklahoma and try to capture Outlaw and drag them back to the hanging judge who took care of them there. But that just kind of uh illustrates what the area was like just before Oklahoma became a state. And the reason that matters is because this community was born out of that. My grandfather was born just four years after Oklahoma became a state. And... uh So it was a very independent and self-dependent area. It it was a, a, you know, a a state that didn't have all of the latest developments because it had been Indian territory up to that point. And, you know, it was kind of fun. My grandpa uh, knew Wyatt Earp and Bell Star were related to Doc Holliday. And he had tons of fun stories for me growing up. And just as an example, one that I thought was really cute when he was a young man. Um, he was out gallivanting, as he would say, and he came home late one night in the dark on horseback, and there was a low water crossing where he had to forge a stream. And as he went across the stream, someone behind him yelled, stop and get off your horse. Well, he expected that it was his dad who was trying to get on to him for staying out too late. So he said, oh, I ain't got time to pull with you. He just kept going. Well, a gun went off several times and the guy yelled, I said, stop and get off your horse. Of course, his horse tried to bolt. but grandpa reined in the horse so it couldn't run away just to prove that he wasn't scared. And he says, I said, I ain't got time to fool with you. Well, he got home several minutes later and his dad was in bed asleep. And so he ran where his dad kept his gun and the gun had not been fired. And then grandpa said, that's when he started shaking in his boots. So he grew up in this kind of an area it really was true cowboys and indian stories. Um, later you know he met my grandmother and together they they had weathered the impacts growing up World War 1 and together they weathered the impacts of World War 2 the great depression and even some impacts from the Oklahoma dust bowl years. And of all of these things I think it was actually World War 2 that had the harshest impact. And the reason was because there was a mass relocation of the community as a result of that war. And I'd like to talk more about that later in the in the podcast. But it really had a big impact on this community. Um, there were very strong community ties that developed between the friends and the extended family in this area over the decades. Uh, my grandmother was from a large family. My grandfather was not from a small family. And between them, they had dozens and dozens of nieces and nephews and cousins. And and there were friends of all these nieces and nephews and the in-laws of all of these cousins and nieces and nephews. So the community grew out of a foundation of people that knew each other really well and weathered these difficult times. Um, These people all lived in rural areas. And almost everyone had land. And it's important to understand that because it was the basis for what it meant to be a prepared community. Um, Some of these people had only about an acre. A lot of people had maybe three to ten acres, and some people had small ranches, maybe a hundred acres or more. And I don't think any of these people were full-time farmers. They weren't trying to make a living off the land. Um, They didn't use it as a primary income, but they all farmed. So rather than saying that it was a farming community, it's probably more accurate to say that they were a community of gardeners. But let's talk about that for a little bit. What that meant for preparedness and for this community. Um, When I was growing up, my grandfather every spring would buy about seventy-five chickens that he would raise. Uh, He had a brooder house to keep them warm and then free-range area for them to grow. And those became the fryer chickens that we put in the freezer in the fall. Um, My grandmother and grandfather also had. a dozen or more laying hens and all of our eggs came from the laying hens. And we had a farm that was large enough to have a few cattle. And so every fall we would butcher a yearling calf. And so my grandfather would fill up our freezer with frozen chickens and we would fill up their freezer with steaks and hamburger meat. Um, in addition to that, the people in the area uh, hunted in season. And so there was always a supply of venison, fish, wild turkey, that sort of thing that filled up the freezers. Um, Most everyone in the community had a garden, and different people had different success with their gardens. Um, My grandparents' garden was probably 50 feet by 75 feet in size, so a decent-sized garden, but not, not massive. Um... One of my uncles had a garden about the same size, and he also ran a few cattle. Our garden was about the size of a football field. It probably was 50 by 100 yards, and uh, we ran several cattle. Um, but what's interesting is the smallest garden of all was of my other uncle's, and it was maybe 20 feet by 50 feet max, and he produced the most produce of all of us. And the reason I wanted to point that out, Jack, is because he employed a lot of the uh, permaculture methods that you teach. And I want people to know that they can be very successful with a smaller garden. And, and he proved that um, there was a lot. You said of, his spot was, what, 20 by 20? No, it was more like 20 by 40, maybe.
0: Okay, so 800 square feet. That's not huge, no.
1: It's not huge, but he, he grew more food than uh, we did in our football field-sized garden. Wow. Well. So in addition to that, though, uh, I should spend a little bit more time about his farm. There was an old house that had been built next to a spring. And when they bought the farm, they moved into the house and did some renovations. But this spring watered all of his livestock. He had 150 acres and somewhere around 40 head of cattle. Um, the spring not only watered his livestock, but it provided all the water for his household. And then it filled up. A Half a dozen or more very large ponds, and from these ponds he irrigated about forty acres of blueberries. Um, he also had about an acre of orchards, he had some vineyards, and he had this vegetable garden. so um he was he was really heavily into the food production scene. Um, but anyway, I wanted to talk a little bit about community in relation to his blueberries. But 40 acres of blueberries, when it was time to harvest, it was a really big job. And he used to tell me that he could bring in a, a picking machine that would make the job a whole lot easier. But rather than doing that, he had the community people come and either pick blueberries on the halves or pick for pay or pick and buy what they wanted. And in so doing, um, it became a service to the entire community. And uh, some moms and kids would show up and and pick during the harvest to get a little bit of extra money for the summer and that sort of thing. So he he just wanted to reach out to the community and support everyone instead of just saying, well, I could save money by having a picking machine. And it was this kind of approach to community that permeated the culture um across the board. That's part of what made this community so so uh vibrant. So in addition to all the farming that went on, and I should I should mention There was uh, a lot of sharing. If someone came over to visit, they almost always brought a grocery sack full of whatever extra that they had. If their tomatoes had done well, then you got a grocery sack full of tomatoes. You know, if it was lettuces or, or radishes or whatever it was, everyone shared freely. And I don't remember anyone ever bartering food or selling food. Um, they just- no,
0: man. I mean, when I grew up in a place like you're describing, it, there were times of the year that you, it was the only time of year you locked your car and put your windows up because you had so much you didn't want anybody giving you anymore, and <laughs> most people figured out you were doing that. They put shit in your car while you were parked downtown. <laughs> exactly. You know, you come back, and there'd be like a bag of zucchinis there, and you're like, man, I don't need any more zucchinis. <laughs> that- so, I mean, I know exactly. Nobody bartered. It was all just freely
1: given to each other. That's right. That's right. And uh, in addition to what people grew, though, um, there was a lot of wild food in the area that we harvested. And, you know, it, we would um, harvest poke greens for poke salads. We would harvest wild blackberries. We would harvest all sorts of wild walnuts and pecans and, and hickory nuts. And uh, the list just goes on and on, wild onions, um, all that sort of thing that added to it. And then if someone had any excess, they would just say, hey, come on over. I mean, one day my grandfather called me when I was uh, maybe 10. And he said, hey, you want to come and pick pears with me? And the deal was that they had a neighbor who had a large pear tree, and they had all the pears they could stand. And they needed someone that could climb to the top of the tree and and throw down the pears. So I spent a day climbing all over this tree throwing pears at my grandfather. We probably took three bushels of pears home. And uh then these pears were put up by my grandmother to make pie filling, um, preserves, jellies and jams, and that became the food for the winter. And this is just one example of what happened regularly. Um, people just shared what they had, and everybody canned and put up the excess. Um, it was not uncommon at all for someone to, to say, yeah, I put up another 75 quarts of tomatoes today. And that was going to be the barbecue sauce and the spaghetti sauce and, and the soup base for the next winter.
0: And, and nobody hid that. People were actually really proud of it. Like, I mean, I remember like my grandmother being so proud of like how many quarts of chow chow we would put up. Chow chow is like a chunky uh, relish that was real popular in the Northeast. And you know, it would always be like because the chow chow was like something to be really proud of. Because chow chow you made like when the frost was about to come, and you just basically grabbed everything that was left and threw it together, that's, I think, the genesis of it is from that late fall harvest in the north, because you get to a point where, like, everything's doing good, but next week, you know, the frost is coming. Right. So if you put up a bunch of chow chow, that meant you did really well that year, because that was the leftovers, that was the uh, the jambalaya of vegetables, if that makes sense.
1: Oh, yeah, and, you know, on that theme, people were always proud of the amount that they were able to put up, and they told people no one was hiding it. Everyone had a store yeah. You know, it is Oklahoma, and there were um tornadoes, and so everyone had a storm cellar, but the storm cellars are packed full of all these jellies and jams and pickles and preserves, and no one locked them. You know, there might be $5,000 worth of food sitting there, and, and everyone said, oh, yeah, it's there. If you need it, go get it, you know. So it was just that kind of a trusting, open community. Um There is another food source, which is kind of interesting, and it does tie into the whole story about this community. Um, There was a military camp called Camp Gruber in the area, and that that's where the relocation comes from that I mentioned earlier. There was a whole community that, when this military base was established, had to move, and when they moved, they left behind their farms, and so there were vineyards and orchards that had just gone feral gone wild but my grandparents knew where they were and we would drive down into this this area which now is a game preserve so it was open to public access and we would drive into this area and we would go to a place in the woods just looked like a forest but you would see that there was a bit of a foundation left most of the foundations for this community were just dry stacked sandstone so there'd be a little bit of sandstone left and that would be that would be the only way that you would know a house had ever been there but there were the plums and there were the grapes and so we were able to, uh, dip into that to make more jellies and everyone shared with friends. And anyway, it's just a, an area that was rich in that kind of, uh, that kind of produce. And there were some things that were more difficult to grow in that area. Um, but there was a lot of truck farming and people would park their trucks beside the highway and they would sell corn, not by the ear, but by the bushel. And it was affordable. And the farmer that was selling the corn directly off his truck was making far more than if he sent it to the distributor. And the people that were buying it were buying it at far, far lower prices than any grocery store could offer it. So it was a win-win for everyone. And so anything that we didn't grow ourselves, we tended to buy off the trucks. And it was frozen or canned and put up for the winter. And the culture developed, in a sense, around this food. And I'll explain more about that too as we go on. But, you know, everyone had a television set, but they, they didn't get used a whole lot. It was very common in the, in the summer, in the evenings to sit on the porch and the porch swings and everyone would have a large bowl in their lap and there'd be a bowl beside you and you'd be shelling peas or breaking green beans, getting them ready to can. And while you did this little handwork, you swapped stories and jokes and laughed and got to know the, you know, your grandparents got to know the generations. And so the food and the preparing of the food became part of the entertainment. Um, we had a lot of fun with that. And in the fall, it would be in the kitchen, around the kitchen table, and we'd be picking the the goodies, as my grandmother called them, out of the, the hickory nuts and the walnuts and the pecans that had been gathered for that year. And we knew that that was going to come back around to us, and pies and banana breads and zucchini breads and all of that. And uh, those times of sitting around... Sharing stories and, and growing as a family and growing in that community and then sharing with others. That's a, a physical expression of the love that I'm talking about that makes a community strong. Um, my grandmother had worked as a cook in one of the small country schools in the area for years. And she was just known by everyone as the cook, even after she was no longer cooking these schools, but all the kids that attended this school um, thought of her as the cook, and many of them were her nieces and nephews and what have you. Anytime anyone had any extra, it came to her house. And part of the reason is because she had an open door policy. Um, She shared meals with people in her home many times a week. And when she shared a meal, you knew you were sitting down to a feast. You couldn't walk away from the table without loosening your belt. And... So if someone caught extra fish, when they went fishing, it came to her house. If uh, someone took a deer, then Grandma got some venison. Um, it was just the way that things were. So people gathered around my grandparents' table, and community grew there. Uh, when we went to the store for food, I didn't think about this as a kid, because I just thought this is the way it was, but when we went to the store, it was for toilet paper, milk, and bread. That's about all we ever had to buy because all the other foods were so well provided by, you know, the land and the community. And uh, just I'd like to paint a picture for the listeners of Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving in our family was more than 30 people crowded into small homes. And the spread of food, easily a thousand dollars worth of food on the table. Um, The turkey was often a wild turkey that someone had taken hunting and had been smoked by my uncle. The pies were from the orchards and from the blueberries and from the blackberries. Um, You know, there was blueberry cobbler, there was blackberry cobbler. The spices that were in the dressing were herbs that people grew in their own gardens. The onions, the sage, all of these things were, were all homegrown. And the green beans... Or what were canned earlier, and it just goes on and on, but out of this this table that was spread for thirty people that had over a thousand dollars worth of food on it, I'll doubt that a hundred dollars was spent to prepare that meal um and it was a time of just really, really great community, a time of love and fun and sharing and you know i I hope that every listener out there has had an opportunity to experience a Thanksgiving like that. But it kind of illustrates how this community operated. Um, but
0: nobody organized it. Nobody said, Hey guys, let's get together and do this. This was just a way of life.
1: Yeah, it was a way of life. It really was a way of life. Um, it wasn't just about food though. The community, because they gathered around the kitchen tables all over the community, you know, because they knew each other, they always looked out for each other. And uh, mm-hmm. another example of love by action, it's kind of funny in, in retrospect, but if a stray dog went hobbling down the dirt road, then phones would start ringing all over the neighborhood. If there is a stray dog, and that grew out of the fear that people had of rabbit animals from years past before baby shots were given to the pets. you know. But the phones would ring, and they'd say, there's a stray dog, come and pull your kids in. Um, everyone was looking out for everyone else. Another example is... uh there was a fire. We had a particularly dry summer one year, and someone was burning some slash, and I probably shouldn't have been doing that, but regardless, the fire got out, and there was a good strong wind, and this fire developed very quickly into several acres burning through a forest. And the phone started ringing and saying, you know, there's a fire up at the corner, and I was old enough then to drive, so I grabbed a five-gallon bucket of water and a gunny sack that I could dip in it, and I raced up to the corner, and other People had shown up as well, and within about 10 minutes, we had the fire completely out. And it was several acres in a forest. And I know there are probably a lot of firefighters out there who are saying, you know, that's pretty dangerous, folks can get hurt that way. And I'm certainly not encouraging people to take on a forest fire on their own. But I think it illustrates the way that this community operated, you know? Well, people say that, but... It wasn't like there was a, a
0: huge fire department hauling butt down the street to take care of this. You could either nip it in the bud or risk the entire town. Uh, and I think we've got into a world now where people are so worried about what's not a good idea to do, that people don't do anything. And I, I think it's great that you guys did that. Well, that's... A, there has to be a point where you look at it and go, okay, this is out of our control. we gotta we got to bail on this. But... Um, I think there's too much of this is somebody else's. Let's let a professional do this today.
1: There's, there's an awful lot of somebody else's problem going around in the world today. And in this community, if there was a problem, it was everybody's problem. And that's the difference, Jack, right there. Yeah. Um, you know, if someone got sick, then people gathered in the home of the sick person, bringing food and offering support, nursing care, whatever was necessary. And, uh, You know, this extends beyond that. When there was a funeral, it was really an amazing thing to see. Um, My grandfather, of course, is well-known in the community because of all the things that he did. But this is just an example. When he passed away, the funeral home, which this is not a small funeral home, probably set 500 people. And it was standing room only. And there were people who couldn't even get in. When it was time for uh, for us to go to the graveyard, to the cemetery, then the line of cars following the hearse went for miles. It wasn't several blocks of cars. It was miles of cars. And you better believe on the highway, people pulled over to show their respects, to let this miles of cars go by. That's the way the community was. Because people knew each other and they cared. And it's just a testimony to, uh, to the love that can be shared, you know, not just for an immediate family, but for hundreds and even thousands of people. Um, one more example of this was the way that everyone looked out for each other's welfare as far as safety. When I uh, took my last two years of college, I lived with my grandmother because my grandfather had just passed away. She had never lived alone before, and she needed somebody, and I needed a place to stay, so it worked out beautifully. But right after graduating, I bought a new Bronco too, and I was moving to Colorado. So I had it backed up to the fence, and I was loading it up. Um, I was the only one home at the time, and I don't remember how many different men came in the front door, pistol at the ready, saying, who's in here? Because <laughs> word got out that someone was robbing Aunt Eunice's house, as everyone called her. And, you know, I see that as love with a gun. <laughs> Nobody was going to get away with Robin A. Eunice or my grandmother. And that's the way this community was. And I think that thieves understood that and they kept their distance. Um, you know, speaking of guns, there was no debate about guns as being, you know, dangerous or safe or should have or shouldn't have or there was none of that. Everybody had guns and they were tools and no one thought of them as anything other than that. You know, you needed the gun, um, as a matter of course, because of the farm you worked on. You needed the gun for hunting and you needed the gun for entertainment. It was just a normal part of the culture and there was, there was no tension at all.
0: Yeah. I'd say growing up, we viewed guns like you might view a tractor or an axe. Yeah. Yeah. There can be, there can be, um, consequences for using it unsafely. But it has a job to do, and you know, other than when you were being taught by an elder about safety, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about it because any dumbass knew that you didn't point a gun at somebody, or you know, I mean, it was just it was just like yeah, and you don't you know drive your tractor over the neighbor's dog, or you know you don't wear flip flops and swing an axe uh, at your feet. Uh, it was a, a basic concept of this was just the this was just what this this niche was filled by this implement and use this way, and anybody that didn't do it was a darn fool. And that was the whole thing.
1: That's correct. That's exactly right. That's what I'm talking about. And I wish that our nation could return as a whole to more of that philosophy around the tool, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, everyone I already mentioned had storm cellars, but they also had kerosene lanterns. Um. A lot of people didn't have generators. And I'd say this was a prepared community, so people might question that. But they were actually set up pretty well to work without electricity. Uh, Their houses were heated with wood stoves. They uh, cooked their food, usually on a propane burner. And when it came to water, it was mostly well water, but people could hand-draw the water out of the wells if they needed to. And there were also springs all over the area where people could get water. So the main concern about losing electricity was you couldn't stay up and read it or watch TV, right? Um, Because all of the basic needs were already covered in other ways. Um, Everyone had their assortment of farm tools and carpentry tools, and they shared these tools openly. So if anyone needed something, they didn't have it, they knew where to go get it from the neighbor down the road. And, you know, the tool shed would be unlocked so people could walk up and get what they need. Um, so, everyone had the tools that were necessary for survival, and they also had a lot of skills. A lot of people in the area knew how to weld, or they were handy with a forge. Um, the common sense sort of stuff that would allow you to build and repair things as you needed. And, you know, the community would even turn out to help build houses. If someone moved in a new area and decided to build a house, people would just show up with their hammer and their saw and say, let's go, what do I do? Um... That sort of a a love by action, I think, really impressed me as a kid. And I didn't realize how special that was until I moved to Colorado and I was no longer in that community. And then I began to realize, wow, that that was something.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, man. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people listen to your talk here and think this is like America of yesterday or... In some ways it is, unfortunately, but I also think they think about it as like this was some magical place, that this was a very unique place. And I can tell you that not everything, because there's things that are geographically specific. Um, you're going to do things a little differently in the Appalachians of Pennsylvania than you will in the uh, the you know, eastern plains of Oklahoma. But the overall way that this community functioned and operated, it sounds like you're talking about the town I grew up in. And I don't know how old you are, but I'm only in my 40s. I'm not that old. And this this way of life is not that far gone.
1: You know, I'm in my 40s as well, and I can say that this community still exists, although it's changed a lot. But the spirit of that community still exists back in northeastern Oklahoma. Um. It's, it's what happens, I think, when you have generations of people who know each other and love each other. So, um, you know, some people may also want to ask about the wealth of the community because so far I've talked.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that. I was, was waiting for you to finish up there, but the one of the things that makes these communities tend to fall apart over time is young people growing up and looking around and going, what They might love the place. I loved the place I grew up in. But when I looked at it as a person looking to have a job, I didn't want to work swing shift at a textile mill or something like that. And a lot of people end up leaving because they don't feel that there's a opportunity for business and what have you there or, or gainful employment. So how did folks earn money? What was the source of wealth for families? I mean, obviously, they did more with less. But at some point, you still have to pay the bills, you have to pay the mortgage, what have you. Sure.
1: Sure. I think a lot of it came from just wise financial planning. You know, (laughs) a lot of these people had had come through the Great Depression, and they knew the value of money, and they were very conservative with it. Uh, My grandfather, he always carried his money in his wallet, did not have a bank account. And that was because of the runs on the bank in the Great Depression. He didn't trust the banks. And if he couldn't pay cash for it, then, uh, you know, they, it wasn't going to happen. And that might seem really foreign to some of us today. But because of that kind of an approach to money, uh, people managed to live with with less money and still do well. But I didn't really realize the true value of the, of the community, the true wealth that the community had there. I mean, the houses were, were relatively small. There weren't many people that drove new vehicles. Um, based on only income levels, I I imagine there were a lot of families that were below the poverty level. Um, But these properties and these houses were clean and well-kept, well-maintained and manicured, and the people had all their needs met. And one key, I think, to this community was that education was very highly valued. Um, But the real true wealth of the community was in their love for one another, their families and the lands they had, that could help them to meet their needs. But that said, let me rewind a little bit. you got to remember that these are gardeners, not farmers, necessarily. And, uh, for example, my uncles were principals at schools in the area. My mom was a college professor. Uh, my aunts were teachers or, or worked in administration and business. And there are a lot of smart folks and professionals who live in this prepared lifestyle. Um, There were electricians and truckers in the community, and there wasn't a huge job market, but people found the value of the community to be, it was just advantageous to say, okay, I'll earn a little bit less, but I'm going to grow my own food, and I'm going to live in this community, and I'm going to have everything I need, and, and I'm going to have a piece of property, and I'm not going to worry about you know, how much money I have in the bank. So that was kind of the approach.
0: Well, when you, when you look back at that then, and you, you, you think about all of the stuff that, that you, this community went through to get into that standpoint, and there's a couple things that you mentioned there that I've kind of keyed in on. The well, first would be the, uh, Great Depression, and I think you said something about a relocation of, uh, of families. H- how was this community impacted by this stuff? And, uh, what what did people do to help each other through it
1: well i i never heard a lot about the great depression growing up so i asked my grandmother about it one day I said hey what was that like going through the great depression and she said oh folks said it was rough <laughs> and i said wait wait what do you mean folks said you were there she goes oh yeah but we'd always lived off the land so it was no different for us and that kind of shocked me at the time, but I realized that their wealth wasn't found in the, um, the nation, national or global economy. Their wealth was found in their land and in their community. And so I think the Great Depression wasn't necessarily that much of a hardship. Of course, there were a lot of people in the area that took advantage of, uh, the WPA and the CCC, you know, the different programs that Roosevelt started to try to help, which a lot of economists would argue that his efforts probably elongated the depression rather than helping. Yep. But I know that there were people there who did take advantage of some of those programs to get some pocket change. But the bottom line was they could live off of the land that they had because they were that prepared. But I think the bigger impact was actually this relocation that I mentioned um, that happened because of World War II. So when World War II started in Europe – then Roosevelt started a program to staff up the military and to build a whole bunch of new military bases. And so this community lived largely in the Qualls area. And the land was actually condemned by the federal government. And families had to leave and relocate to another place. And I want to kind of map out what this means to people because it's not like selling your house in one subdivision and moving across town and buying another house very similar in another subdivision. right? We're not talking about that. What we're talking about here are gardens that you fed your family with in the Depression. Um, that was the source of food, not the grocery store. We're talking about orchards that have been planted and growed and nurtured for 20 years. We're talking about fencing, and the land there is very rocky, so the land had to be cleared. And, you know, we're talking about the places for the farm animals and the homes themselves. All of that went away, and these people depended on these things for their livelihood. Um, So think for a moment. I've been reflecting on this. My grandfather had a young family, three children and a wife, and they had to leave the source of their sustenance. And so... I don't know if the government paid anything for the land that they took or not. I I never found that out. But I know that my grandfather tore down his house, loaded it into a back of a wagon, and probably pulled it with a team of horses to the new location. And when you get to this new location, the soil is full of rocks. There are no fences. There is no garden plot. The trees are growing thickly. You know, there's nowhere to grow anything. The farm is not developed, and the family has to live off of this. And while all of that is going into place and you're worried about whether your family's going to starve or not, you have to build a house at the same time. So when that happens to one family, it's rough. When that happens to an entire community, um, I think that that was a far more challenging time than most people let on. And I know that the way that the community survived that was by pulling the resources, helping each other build the new houses, Helping each other cut down the trees and clear the land and clear the rocks and get the seeds in the ground. Um, I, I don't see any way that a community could survive that without pulling together and sharing, you know, anything that they had in excess so that everyone could get through.
0: Well, and it, it kind of puts a new spin on when people start thinking about survivalism, modern survivalism and, Everybody seems real fond about talking about bugging out. And uh, it kind of shows you how much value there is in, in building value where you stand and, and and using a fallback location only as a fallback location. I mean, the two things might seem somewhat disconnected, but to me they're very much not so because you're talking about a very you know, geographically, not a very large move here. Uh, some people are able to basically move their housing. But they lost an asset that had taken generations to build.
1: Correct. Yep. Yeah. You know, there's a kind of a funny anecdote my grandfather told me. He was a storyteller in the family, if you haven't gathered already. But the uh, military base that was set up ended up housing some prisoners of war from World War II. And my grandfather worked at the base. He didn't fight in the war, but he worked at the base for part of that period of time. And they had had a neighbor before the war, a German family. And when the war started up, um, I guess this family's allegiance was for Germany. They went back to fight for the Germans. And so Grandpa was sweeping up around the the prisoner of war fence. And someone yelled through the fence, Curtis, is that you? (laughs) And it turns out that the German family, who was his neighbor, um, had gone to Germany to fight for the Germans, then captured and brought right back to his home community <laughs> to be a prisoner of war. So, just kind of a funny uh, coincidence.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of ironic, really, and I think there was, there was more of that than people really even realize. I think, back uh, at that time that there were a lot of people that went back to Germany. I think it there was definitely a lot of people that went back to Germany on the German side of things prior to the U.S. entering the war. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think that that was part of it, too, is, you know, the world was fairly convinced for uh, several years there that Hitler was doing great things for Germany. There is a strong pull um, towards supporting Hitler, even in the United States, until the Blitzkrieg started up and, and the lines were drawn in the sand. And so I, think
0: I think people today, because we have the, the, the glasses of history, don't understand that at all, because what, what Germany saw and what many people with, you know, I mean, my family immigrated to this country in, in, in 1893. and But I grew up in a Ukrainian household and learned some Ukrainian language and ate Ukrainian cooking. And I still have some level of of pride in my heritage. And I think there were a lot of people in this country with the same thing from a German background that were nowhere near as far out as 1893 is today that what they looked over and all they saw was a country brought to its knees with as much uh financial hardship as this country was dealing with. And they saw a country rebuilding itself. They did no one, I think especially over here really knew what was going on until until the shooting started, anyway.
1: Yeah, we didn't have Twitter and Facebook to fill us in on the details, either.
0: Yeah, that's something we're divorced from today, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, how long it takes information to get from, you know, Berlin to to uh, to New York is a big difference uh, today than it was back then.
1: You know, I'm glad this subject came up, just as a side like the, the poor people that suffered in the German concentration camps. Um, those that survived have given testimony that the way that they got through was largely because of love. They gave to each other, they helped each other, and they held on to hope when all hope was lost. And it was love that gave them the strength to do that. And, you know, that's a really extreme circumstance. But, you know, there's a parallel. This community that was uprooted and had to move and give up their farms, um, it was love that brought them through as well. It was the actions of love, not just an emotion, right? And so, when I, when I make that claim that love is the, uh, the most critical, most, um, necessary asset for survival, that's what I'm basing it on. I'm basing it on the need for communities to help each other out, to pull together. Um, you know, you mentioned that a lot of these communities have gone away, and I know that in part, they still exist. But like you said, economic pressures and, and job opportunities have caused the younger generations to move on. And uh, we've lost a lot of that. But I think that we can continue to think about these communities. We can build these communities now today with today's standards. I mean, even the, the TSP is part of that and that you're building an online community of listeners and people that get together and share information and ideas and learn from each other, I think that's a beautiful example of a of a widespread community. But I think that people need to start building these communities in their neighborhoods and in their towns um, you know i I just want to admonish people that are hearing this get out there and do something. plant some food in your backyard, right. And build this community around the kitchen table. Start working together on your house or farm projects with people around you. Even if you're in the city, you can help each other with the house projects. You see a neighbor painting his house, grab your paintbrush and get over there. That's how friendships are developed. You know, take care of the sick and understand the power of love. I mean, love is the fuel of these communities. and provides hope and courage and strength to stand up and do the right thing. It's the reason that men and women can stand up and say, you know what, it was tough, but I did what was necessary to do my part to support this community in this hard time. I really believe that love is the fuel that, that empowers that. And uh find out what's possible for a love-based community.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, but as I do look back, I wonder what... What will it really take to restore this in this country? And I wonder about the things that have caused it to unravel. One is economics and people leaving the other areas. One thing you mentioned that I completely agree with in my experience with a similar society was the size of families. Um, everybody that I knew in school had two or three or four siblings. Everybody had, you know, a couple dozen cousins. Most of the cousins people had lived somewhere within driving distance, and you knew people based on who their cousins were. Today we have a lot smaller families as well, and I think that means that what we need to do is more outreach to people that aren't kin, so to speak. And I I think that that's that's one of the linchpins missing, because it's not just, well, Tom's my cousin, so we hang out. It was Tom's my cousin, so all of a sudden I instantly have – a gateway into all of Tom's friends and additional contacts who immediately had a level of trust because I was Tom's cousin. Yeah. And and the other way around. So Tom also ended up with like all the friends that I had made independent of him. Well well if you're if if you know if you're if you're Jack's cousin you must be alright. And as the family size has shrunk, and that's not all bad because in the end there's only so much room uh and you know population has swollen in the past few decades. Um, But we've we've lost something, I think, because of the smaller size of families.
1: Yeah, I I think I agree completely with that. But people are still people, and neighbors are still neighbors. And while we may not have the backbone of the family as much as we once did, we can still invite our neighbors over to lunch or dinner and get to know who they are. And you know what? You may not like your neighbors, but that doesn't matter. (laughs) Find out who they are, you know? See, well, you might like them if you knew them. That's right. Absolutely. Agree or disagree on some things, but make sure you spend time together. There's, there's just no excuse for us to uh, not know who our neighbors are. I
0: was talking to somebody recently, and I won't say in what state because I don't want to you know, get anybody ticked off at me or anything because we were kind of joking about it, but they were talking about how they had moved there about 10 years ago and they didn't really know a lot of people yet and that the attitude was almost why would i want to meet somebody i don't know <laughs> like like the people that live there were like they used meat totally different than than m- maybe you or i would where like if i said i i'm, I'm going to go meet somebody generally speaking i'm saying that i'm going to go be introduced to somebody i have not yet met right right that's what meet means to me if i you know if if i'm going to if you and i know each other and if we lived nearby i would say I'm going to go have a beer with, with with Kurt, right? I wouldn't say I'm going to go meet Kurt because I already know you. But but the, almost the entire meaning of the word in their 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 town was meeting was something you do with people you already knew. And, and and we got to get away from that, man. I mean, because you know it, the problem with friends is that some of them move, and I hate to put it this way, but sooner or later, as we get older, you know your your friends die, and I think there's a lot of older people now dealing with this consequence at a very small. Group of friends, and 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 if you're the one that makes it longer, it's you know unlike the you know thirty forty years ago even you end up very feeling very alone, and I think that's another thing that's just just destroying the the fabric of the community in this country, and I think it's something that nobody even looks at, and you, if people wonder why that's a preparedness topic, you know. All I can say is I can't tell you how many people have emailed me and said I'm worried about my older parents. Oh, yeah. Where in the kind of community you're talking about, you might worry, but not the way they mean it today, right? Because there's no such thing as being alone in a community like that, especially when you were in need.
1: Exactly. It's really true. And, you know, one other point of these communities, Jack, and I don't want to go off on some conspiracy theory or anything, but these communities scare the socks off of the powerful people who would like to control the populace.
0: Of course they do. Of course they do because you can't go in and say, "You know what, you need to give this up and pay this tax or you're not going to have this." Because people in a community like that go, "What the hell would we want that for?" Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. well, we're gonna, you're going to lose this benefit. What benefit? It's no benefit to me. You know. Why do I want you to take money for the guy down the road that has to be a little bit more successful than me that worked hard for it just so I can have something when I know damn well if I need anything, he will give it to me? Yep. Yeah. Right. How do you how do you execute class warfare in a society where everybody looks after everybody and nobody really goes, well, he makes $10 an hour more than I do, so I should get something of his. It, it, it absolutely destroys the entire status quo of manipulation and control. And I don't know that it's a consorted effort to do away with these communities, but by making a consorted effort to build a nation based on haves and have-nots and class warfare and division, these communities falling over time with incrementalism is a natural consequence. So it maybe isn't so much as a conspiracy, but a natural outcome of a continued warfare on independence, self-reliance and liberty. And I think when people say independence, people don't get how important groups are to independence. So when we think of independence today, we've been taught that word is selfish, right? If you're independent, you're selfish. That means you're out for yourself. Where independent is actually a community virtue, right? That the only reason I want my independence is because that way I can build my life in a way that I can be part of my community and take care of other people, and that if I'm going to give, if I'm going to be willing to step aside with things with you that I disagree with and recognize your independence, then then mine must be recognized as well. And we've we've actually had, I think, a point where words have been twisted to mean what they don't such as independence such as self reliant when you think of self-reliant today there's been a lot of i would call it almost propaganda that so that self-reliant person they they just want to be off on their own and they're not a realist and they don't get it where self-reliant meant yeah if my car broke down i could fix it but if your car broke down i could fix it and and we like the only word for it is we've bastardized the definition of words like this in our society and it, it, and I, again, it almost does feel like a consorted effort to rip these communities apart.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. And I think that if we can build these communities back up again, then, uh, we gain a, a huge step toward, um, security and, you know, the independence you're talking about, it, it's just so critical. And, uh, that's what I meant. You know, at the end of the last podcast we did on wilderness survival, that's what I meant by love is the most critical thing for survival. Um, I hope that what we shared about this community will help some people, maybe inspire some people to reach out to their neighbors and to try to make a difference. And you know, when you start reaching out to people, they reach out to you. So I just really believe in this. It's an important thing.
0: Well, Kurt, I appreciate you being on the show with us today. Um I appreciate your viewpoint into this. This is something we talk about all the time, and I've even told stories of how I've grown up and where I came from and the lessons that I got from these types of communities. But to have someone come on from a totally different community that's, I would say, about 1,800, 1,900 miles departed from mine as the crow flies and have all of those things restated and re- evaluated, Uh and the only differences really are, well, it was hotter there than it was where I was, and it was flat there, and it was mountainous where I was. But and, and so there's certain things that you might do a little differently because of the geography. And I would probably tell you that the place I grew up was far more Catholic than Protestant. Um, so there's certain cultural things. There was a lot more um, – what's the word I'm looking for? It's my own background. I can't Slo- – Slovakian – uh, 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 immigration, uh, is the foundation of the community, then probably European, German, uh, uh, Irish descent. There was some Irish too, but, so there was different cultural aspects, but the way that everything worked, the interaction, the mutual support, um, hunting, fishing, gathering. One thing I'd like to say before you leave, because I thought about this and then I just, you might so many, so many great points today that I kind of drifted on this one. You talked about gathering wild edibles. I think the one thing that's killing that today is access and perceived access. Yeah. And here's yeah. what I mean by that. When I was a kid, if there were blackberries growing on the side of the road, you just pulled over and picked them. Nobody even worried, like, oh, whose property might this be? Because it was the side of a highway. It was easement. We all knew that. Today, I think there's people who would go, am I going to be allowed? And there's actually nothing preventing you from doing that, right? But, but, but people actually fear that. Or when we had these different places that were like abandoned old coal mine areas and stuff up on the mountains, if there were blueberries there, there was nobody saying, well, that's mine, right? That was like a community asset. Like the coal company ruined it and destroyed it. Nature repaired it. And if you went up there and found something that was, you know, that wasn't like attached to somebody's car or something, right? If it was grown out of the ground, you could just take it. And I think that a lot of those places have now, In many cases, like I know areas that I did this as a kid, that the coal companies that still own the land could care less about it. They're never going to do anything with it. It's an eyesore to them. It's a problem. The government might be making them clean some of it up, but most of it's just sitting there, but it's still on their rolls as land they own. They've posted it for litigation reasons. They don't want to be sued if somebody falls down an old shaft or office-driven bank. Or somebody has bought it and has now said it's mine. And I think that the wild edible thing is a huge, huge asset. And I think that, you know, as we look at developing and reinvigorating communities, that one of the things we should be doing is getting certain pieces of land that are already that way and at least making it known. And then the other side is, as a community working to set aside places like that. There's people that own 100 acres, and and they only mess with three or four. And the rest of it is just basically wilderness. and They couldn't give a damn. If somebody went out there and picked blueberries, but nobody knows that. Right. And that's because nobody talks to each other. And to me, that is such a piece of the heartbeat of a community like that. We picked wild strawberries. We picked blueberries and the hunting and the fishing were such a big part of uh, the community. The the joke about, you know, my homestead was since that, since that boy moved back, when I moved back with my grandparents, their smokehouse runs in July. Right. Because that was then when everybody quit fishing, you know, and I was still going wherever it was. So the smokehouse would run in July. And that wasn't like a bad thing. That was like, look, they they're smoking fish in July.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: And, 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 and but that was because there was access. And that's another thing we have to restore, not just the relationships, but the access to these wild places that allow for this bounty that, you know, is a
1: lot of what built this country. Well, the land is the, is the resource on which this nation is built, you know, and if we have access to the land, then we have access to that resource, and if we don't, we don't. You know, and it, the sense of community also helps because these days we always think about, oh, no, am I trespassing? But, you know, back then it was like, no, I'm not trespassing. This is my friend's property. That was the key, right?
0: Like, so if you go walking down the street now, well, one thing I'll say about the community I live in now, people do look out for each other, Right. But until you're known, well, what are you doing anywhere other than where you live, right? So it takes that rebuilding, because that's, that's true, too, that, you know, if, if, if there was somebody out in front of my gate right now kind of messing around out there, right, I might be like, what the hell are you doing? But if I know who they are, I don't care what you're doing.
1: Right. Right.
0: Exactly. So I guess the two things kind of spin off each other. Anyway, um, you know, last time you were on, we did talk about wilderness survival, which I think is actually, it's amazing how the circle completes itself because part of the problem, part of the solution to the problem we're talking about is if people get out, there's a lot of public lands. There are a lot of places to do that, and taking those wilderness skills with them is a is a great idea uh, if they're going to go into those places. And the, uh, the product that you put together, the, the 180 stove, it's a great product to take with you when you go there. At last time you were on, you did kind of a, a a discount for my member support brigade members, which is still available, and you did something kind of for everybody for a limited time. Um, knowing the nice guy you are, can I hit you up to do something like that again? <laughs> I mean, the MSB guys already have a discount, so maybe we could do something for everybody, or maybe we could add something to that. I don't know. Well,
1: here's what we can do: the the MSB members get ten percent off on a 180 stove, and that offer still stands. And you know, you can order that through. Jack's website. Um, But for people who uh, aren't a member yet, who are going to be a member in the future but aren't a member yet, we'd like to offer uh, free shipping for people that are hearing this podcast because that that helps you to pay the cost quite a bit too. And the way that you get that is you go to our website and we're going to have an icon there with the survival podcast that you can click that will take you on to a site that will provide you uh The free shipping services, and we're going to do that for a limited time as a way of showing our appreciation to Jack and this whole community for having us on. Um, and then I also wanted to mention something else, Jack, about that. Last time when we visited, you recommended that I start a blog that talked about the wilderness survival skills, and I thought it was a great idea. So we have done that. So, folks, if you want to know more about the wilderness survival side of this discussion, which we really didn't explore today then if you go to our website, which is 180TAC, T-A-C-K, 180TAC.com, if you go to our website, then you can click on the 180TAC blog there, and there's a, a sizable now series of wilderness survival blogs that explain how to take care of yourself in emergencies and how to live off the land and that sort of thing. So if you want more information about the wilderness survival, it's all there. So if you want to get the free shipping, go to 180tac.com. And if you want to take advantage of the MSB discount and free shipping, then go to Jack's website, and you know how to get into your um, member support brigade login.
0: So, should so, so I hear you right. So you're going to do the free shipping limited time only right? for everybody, but you're also going to do free shipping limited time only for the MSB members on top of the discount. That's correct. Wow. Okay, cool. I didn't realize that. That's that's awesome. See so you guys when I hit people up, I get you good stuff. So you guys have that set up on your end, so the folks that are MSB members, all they gotta do is log in and there's a special link for 180 TAC for you guys to get your pricing, and they'll just update where that link points so that you guys can get ten percent off and free shipping. That's a killer deal. And if you've been wanting to add a great compact cook stove uh to your to your either your wilderness kit or your bug out kit, Man, that's a great deal, and I'd do it now before the free shipping goes away because I don't know what shipping is on something like that, but it's got to be a few bucks.
1: You know, I should give a quick highlight about what we're talking about. You shouldn't assume that everybody.
0: Yeah, wait a minute. Uh- uh, let me let me set that up for you. Right, since I screwed that up on you, we're like assuming that everybody that's here today heard the last interview. So exactly what is the 180 stove, Kurt, and what makes it so gone cool? I sometimes forget that not everybody's heard every you know 1160 odd episodes.
1: Well, the 180 stove is a natural-fueled uh, stove, so you can burn twigs, grass, leaves. If it if it burns, you can cook with it. It is the size of a burner on your home range right now. So anything that you would cook on a single burner on your range, you can do with the 180 stove. Um, it folds down into a self-forming case that fits in your hip pocket, and the whole thing weighs less than the smallest micro-stove with a fuel canister. So we claim that we're the lightest stove or the least expensive stove because you don't have to buy fuel. And we're the greenest stove because you don't have to buy that fuel and send that fuel canister to landfill once you're done with the, the cooking. So it's, uh, it's not a fire pit. We had one customer recently who thought he was buying a fire pit and was disappointed. It's the size of a burner on your home stove. Um, but, you know, I went backpacking this spring with 10 people and fed 10 people for three days off of this stove. So you can do mighty things with a little stove.
0: Well, that's very cool, and I appreciate your generosity and the additional uh, support of the MSB. Uh, Again, that'll be a limited-time thing, but the discount's permanent. And then free shipping for all that, that's pretty cool, too. And and I thank you for being with us today and, and sharing your story of your past, because I think the more people that tell those stories, the more we can make people long for that past and maybe start to realize longing for it's one thing and building it's another. And... These days are not that far gone. In 1985, I was a teenager with a 22 rifle shooting squirrels uh, and and walking through neighbors' backyards who would wave to me on the way to the mountain uh, to get me to come shoot a groundhog eating their garden. Um, 1985 is not 1885. It is not that long ago, and there is no reason we can't restore that. And I I appreciate you sharing that story because I think it's the stories that will lead us back to our beginnings.
1: Well, Jack, it's been my honor to be on the show. We really appreciate it. And, you know, here at 180 Pack, we continue to promote wilderness survival, community, and, uh, these sorts of skills that are necessary. And, uh, you know, if enough people get on board, we can turn this thing around. What the picture that you're painting is not that far away.
0: You know, I don't know why this came to me, but I'm going to say this now because when things come to me, I believe they should be said. Um, my, my nephew and my niece, and uh, this is on my my, hu- my wife's uh, sister's husband, uh, all are always going on a couple times a year mission trips. They're very active in their church, and uh, you know they don't go to Africa or anything like that because they're kids on summer break and spring break and what have you. Uh, and they do wonderful things, and they go help put together people's houses and stuff like that. And you know they go you know a couple hundred miles out, and it's part of the experience and all. I'd like to challenge all of you guys out there that are involved with things like that in your church the next time your church wants to put together a mission trip and travel 250, 300 miles to consider traveling three or four blocks because I think that we've gotten really zealous in, in that world, in that community with mission trips and I think it actually makes a bigger impact on somebody when somebody from two neighbors, a neighborhoods away comes and paints their house or fixes their stairs or puts in a wheelchair ramp and I don't mean to, to, to mean anything that anybody's doing like that because it's a wonderful thing. And for the kids, it is part of the experience, going somewhere, seeing other people, things like that. But, man, I think that we're missing the boat sometimes if we don't start in our own backyard. And uh, I'd like to thank you for making me think that and for being on the show and helping to remind us all that yesteryear is actually yesterday if we think about it the right
1: way. That's right. Thanks, Jack. All right, folks, and with
0: that, this has been Jack Spierko along with Kurt Lindell, helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget that we are what we eat. I don't know the answer, it's like there's nothing I can do.